All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you had a lovely spring break. Um, I'm speaking, of course, to my beloved AP students today. This is Mr. Wilkes. Uh, hope everybody is doing well, staying safe, and feeling healthy. Hope nobody's got the coronavirus. I haven't had it yet. Nobody I really know has had it yet, so hopefully we'll stay good and uh, not get sick. But uh, we're picking back up on our content from where we left off uh, because I felt I had an ethical obligation to kind of put an ending to the story. We can't talk about World War I without talking about the end of the story because a lot of historians um, don't see it as World War I and then World War II later, two different events, two different, you know, clashes in history, two different eras. I see them more as the first and second half of a contest, almost like a sporting event. You've got first half, short half time of a couple decades, second half. They are so intertwined and interconnected that it uh, is impossible to talk about one without the other. So I could not possibly end this course without talking about the events leading up to World War II and the, um, the clash that is World War II. Um, so we're going to get started here in just a second. Um, after World War II, we're going to double back and review and just focus on the AP test. However, if you want any resources or information about other information we didn't get to talk about, like the Cold War, like the Vietnam War, like terrorism, 9-11, you know, conflict in Africa, all those kinds of things, I'm happy to provide them, but uh, just let me know. Um, I wish the semester had gone a little bit more to plan so we could have got to that stuff, but here we are. Got to make the most of it. So... Uh, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, I want to get started with a bit of a surprise. Uh, I don't have my bell from class anymore, but I have something better I ordered from Amazon. So, whenever you hear this sound that I'm about to play, you'll know it's an important term, something you should probably write down, something you should probably circle or underline or highlight uh, or put in your notebook or whatever. Uh, you guys ready for the sound? Here we go. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, one more time. So if you hear the hype air horn, that means it's important. All right, without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, so we can't talk about World War II without talking about the bridge years between World War I and World War II. Um... They were some pretty down years for a lot of the world, some pretty dark times for a lot of the world, especially the losers of World War I. But it is the chain link between these two that bonds them is the years between 1919 and 1939 or 1937, depending on who you ask. But uh, these interwar years are critical to understanding how we end up getting to a world where we do this world war thing all over again. So, where we last picked up, um, World War I has ended with the armistice. 
Uh, Germany has surrendered, has signed the Treaty of Versailles. And the world is back to peace again, relatively. Um, now, when Germany signs the Treaty of Versailles, they sign over pretty much full control of their national prosperity. Um, they take away any chance that Germany has of a successful rebuild of a stable new government of a uh, prosperous economy. The Treaty of Versailles is just a punch in the face to Germany as a country. So um, other places, the Ottoman Empire is torn apart after World War I. Um, most of those lands are divided up to, shockingly, the British Empire. France. Um, but uh, all the colonies of Germany are also taken and given away to the other European powers. All the African colonies of Germany are divvied up. Austria-Hungary, that empire is dissolved. Um, a lot of change is happening in the world in the 1920s. Also in the world in the 1920s, we have this thing called... The Roaring Twenties, where the United States becomes an industrial and economic powerhouse. We become one of, if not the premier uh, economic powers in the world, right along with Great Britain, Europe, you know, uh, China, etc. These, these are the years that that happens. That is until 1929, because in 1929... What happens? Well, the stock market collapses. I feel kind of bad doing the air horn for that, but uh, the stock market collapses, starting the Great Depression. So, the Great Depression, a lot of people think it's an American event. It is not. It is a worldwide event. It hit America very hard, but it hit everybody kind of hard. Um, the Great Depression is about 12 to 13 years of huge unemployment numbers of a lot of people without jobs, without homes, a lot of people begging for food, a lot of people on government assistance or wanting to be on government assistance. It is not a great time. So even though the United States had the Roaring Twenties, they followed it up with the terrible Thirties, if you will. Um... But back to Germany. Uh, Germany, their economy gets hit by the Great Depression and World War I, kind of a one-two punch. And Germany is in absolute shambles. Uh, their economy is not worth a cent. Their dollars are so inflated that people use them to burn in their chimneys for firewood, more so than they use them to buy as dollar currency. You see this now in countries like Venezuela. Their paper dollar is worth so little that wheelbarrows full of it can only buy, you know, a candy bar. Um, the unemployment rates in Germany are huge. The amount of homeless or wounded veterans are huge. The amount of orphaned families or widowed wives from the war is huge. This whole country is struggling and the only thing it can count on to keep it from falling all apart is their new government called the Weimar or Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic is Germany's new democratic 
constitutionally structured government. They got rid of the Kaiser. They got rid of the monarchy, all that stuff. Um, and ideally, they were supposed to build up like Britain or like United States, you know, become one of the democratic powers. Um, the problem is it was full of a bunch of inept corrupt leaders who made very selfish decisions and who made very shady, corrupt decisions that made a bad situation go from bad to horrible. I mean, Germany in the 1920s and early 30s is one of the worst places in all of Europe to be living. Um, and the people start getting angry. They start getting frustrated and outraged with the government they want to change. And all they need is somebody to unite them uh, because Germany, even though they have been humbled by World War I, in their eyes, they are still the premier nation of Europe. The nationalistic spirit of Germany is still huge. They still see themselves as the best of the best. They're just in a rough patch. So they need somebody to lead them out of that rough patch and into prosperity again. So they're desperate for a charismatic you know, dramatic young leader to sort of sweep the voters off their feet and, and take them back to their proper place up atop the powers of Europe. You can guess where this is headed. Uh, we're going to talk about who that person is uh, a lot, and that would be Adolf Hitler. I'm not going to air horn for Hitler. That just sounds too messed up. Um... Adolf Hitler rises to power in the mid-20s to early 30s. By the mid-30s, he is the top uh, elected official executive office in Germany, the chancellor, uh, and he's running things. He is um, slowly turning over Europe to, or not Europe, to, he's slowly turning Germany over to a authoritarian, fascist, dictatorship, uh, a government of intimidation, of power, of violence, shows of force, of suppression, of free speech, uh, of very nationalistic, toxic, racial separation, things like that. But the people of Germany at this time are dying for somebody like this to get them all fired up about something again. He's promising them to restore Germany to greatness, and that is all they could ask for. So, there comes Hitler. Um, we're talking pre-World War II, pre-Holocaust, you know, he starts getting Germany back to work again. He's opening factories, he's building a lot bigger military structures, he's breaking a lot of the rules of the Treaty of Versailles, but uh, he doesn't really care because he's trying to be sneaky about it. Um, and he's making Germany better. I mean, you can't give Hitler credit for really anything in history. He's a pretty terrible guy. The only good thing he ever did was kill Hitler. Um, congrats to Hitler for killing Hitler. Uh, but he did revamp the German economy. He did drastically reduce unemployment. He did uh, give Germans a boost in morale and uh, sense of optimism. Uh, you can't deny that, even though it was going to end terribly. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to pick back up with what's going on in the other side of the world, in China and Asia. 
All right, welcome back. Um, I know I promised I told you guys we're going to Asia next, but I did need to say a quick little in-between because I forgot about Germany's little sort of awkward little brother in all this in the 1920s and 30s who also joins them in becoming fascist dictatorship, and that would be uh, Italy, the nation of Italy. Italy is united under the fascist dictator. Uh, his nickname is Il Duque. Uh, Benito Mussolini. Mussolini is a poor man's Hitler and is constantly playing Robin Hood to Hitler's Batman. He wants to be like Hitler. He tries to do the same sort of persona and style. But he's kind of an idiot, and he's not running a powerhouse country. Italy is not, you know, the worldly power that Germany ever was. So Mussolini tries his best, and he does cause a lot of trouble. Um, but he also is no Hitler. Um, same sort of fate, but uh, he leads Italy eventually into World War II, um, and creates the same sort of environment in Italy. A fascist police state. A lot of paranoia. A lot of propaganda. You know, do what the nation needs or get out of the way. If you're not like us, you're the enemy. You know, it's us or them. If you don't like this country, get out type thing. It's Fascism is a very, very hard thing to describe. Um, but I will give you... The textbook definition, it is far-right authoritarian ultra-nationalism characterized by dictator of power, forcible suppression of opposition, strong regimentation of society, and of the economy, which came about in the 20th century Europe nations. So, fascism is like you've got a powerful leader, Uses strong men to push people around and get his laws put in. Uses intimidation and violence to get rid of or silence the groups who oppose him. Uh, to muscle the press into quieting down. To basically impose his will. Um, and anybody who speaks out against it is thrown in jail or worse is disappeared or put into a, a prison camp or tortured or whatever. Um... Fascism is it's it's blurry because it's basically just an extremely extremely powerful right wing government that happens to get taken over by a dictator who claims to be democratic. It, it's complicated, as you can tell from the way I'm talking about it. But uh, let's move over to Asia. So, what's happening in Asia in the 20s and 30s? Well. Japan and China are two big players here, as always. Uh, Japan and China um, are doing a lot of historical changing, but in different directions. China is in shambles. Uh, remember the uh, Qing Dynasty was the last dynasty in China to hold power before it was toppled during the Taiping Rebellion. Um, well, after that, China has a bunch of makeshift governments come in and try it but fail epically. Um, China 
is a work in progress through the 20s and 30s, and a lot of people die. Um, and they're very vulnerable at this point. They have a lot of people. Their population's huge, as always. They've got a lot of natural resources, as always. They're a huge country size-wise, but they are not stable. They are not really organized, and they are not run by great leaders, um, which makes them a target, which we'll get back to in a minute. But we need to talk about the country that's going the opposite way. If Japan is riding the elevator down, or if China's riding the elevator down, the person on the elevator on the way up, moving on up, is Japan. Japan is rising fast. They were pretty much unscathed in World War I. They're industrialized. They are imperializing all the lands around them slowly but surely. They picked a fight in the Sino-Russian War in 1904 and won it, defeated Russia for part of uh, the Russian territory. They are taking all the islands and areas, Korea, um, and eventually Japan gets hungry enough to pick a fight with the big dog, which is China. Um, this is what is known in history as the Sino-Japanese War. The Sino-Japanese War is... A lot of people start date for World War II. I would say it should be, because the Sino-Japanese War is the size and scale of World War. It's just not happening in Europe yet. It's happening in 1937 is when it starts. The Sino-Japanese War is Japan full-on invading and assaulting mainland China. Um, in this time, mainland China is, um, like I said, vulnerable. They're disunified. They're turbulent. Um, so Japan early on has a lot of success. They come out and they win victory after victory. You know, crash and burn type Warfare, very quick, very successful, um, and very horrible. Uh, Japan does some things during this war, uh, particularly one we'll talk about in Nanjing, um, or Nanking, depending on how you spell it, um, that are just horrible war crime atrocities, tons, and I mean millions, of innocent women, children, civilians, elderly, are abused, assaulted, raped, murdered, um, tortured, you, you name it. It's, it's a really, really ugly conflict. Um, and Japan starts racking up casualties very, very quickly too. Once China realizes what's happening and is able to muster their forces, this becomes something of a stalemate. Um, Japan bites a big bite out of China, but once they start getting slowed down and, and getting their tires stuck in the mud there, they really never can get their way out. Um, Japan does not have the manpower to ever fully defeat China. China's like Russia. It's kind of a country you can't really overwhelm by size and, and, and manpower. You've got to have a lot of things going in your favor. So they kind of get bogged down into this, which means Japan needs all the resources they can get. So they start colonizing and imperializing all these lands, Korea, the South Pacific Islands, um, Tahiti, uh, Malaysia, um, the Philippines, all these places, um, because they need the metal, the wood, 
the manpower, the iron, the oil, etc., um, and the food. Japan grows to be such a menace, and we hear so much about these war crimes, that the United States eventually cuts off resources to Japan, because we're one of the biggest oil producers in the world in the late 1930s, and Japan needs so much oil that they're getting a lot of it from us. And when we start hearing about these horrible things that they do, such as the rape of Nanking, which I'm not going to get into. You can Google it if you want to hear a lot about it. But basically an entire city was Mongol-style, you know, blitzkrieged by the Japanese and they committed horrible war crimes. America finally put its foot down and said, no more oil, we're not importing any more oil to you guys. We're not doing business with you. We're, cut, we're boycotting you. Um, that's going to come back to be a major decision later on. Um, so that's what's going on in Asia at this time. India is still under the British Empire. They're struggling a lot with trying to get out of the British Empire, but that's still a ways away. Um, and obviously, you've got your colonial states and stuff like that. Uh, but Japan is the big scary fighting dog right now in that region. Um, and the whole world is kind of a little bit afraid of what's going on over there. Kind of like they're afraid of what's going on in Europe with Italy and Germany and all that. Um, so we're going to pause here for a minute and then we'll pick back up and answer the question that I'm sure all of you have, which is, how did we actually, why did we actually get into another Second World War? Why in the world were we uh, okay with this? What would have happened to make this something that humanity itself would agree to do? Um, so we'll be right back. Okay, so to wrap up this uh, episode, I want to just talk about an overview of how in the world did we get back to a world war after the first one? Why is this also tied together? Well, it's tied together mostly because Germany's reaction after World War I and the rise of Hitler and all that, the rise of fascism and Nazism, is all in direct response to being humiliated, being absolutely devastated, and punished by the Treaty of Versailles. So the wounds left by World War I basically get infected and cause a disease that is World War II, if that makes sense. Um, Italy rising as a fascist power is certainly a problem too. They're taking uh, warfare to places like Ethiopia and trying to uh, colonize them, which was against the League of Nations, which was the original like UN-style group, against their rules. Uh, Germany is slowly taking small regions of formerly German property, which is violating the rules of the treaty and also violating the League of Nations. Um, and these fascist powers are all putting people on edge uh, in the United States, in Russia, in Asia, Africa, everywhere. Um, also, you have... The Japanese growing in power, growing in aggressiveness, um, becoming a threat to American interests, to worldwide interests in the Pacific, uh, committing horrific atrocities in China, and um, basically 
trying to become a, a pan-Asian empire. They want to unite like all of Asia under one ruler. And that is something the rest of the world is kind of freaked out by it because um, empires are only cool if white Europeans do it, according to Europe. Um, so uh, this growing tide of nationalism, fascism, um, everybody is beefing up their military. Everybody is um, getting more and more powerful weaponry, getting more and more likely to try to pick a fight. Um, this is how World War II starts. I don't want you to be under the impression that World War II was about the Holocaust. The Holocaust was something almost nobody knew about until the last year or two of the war. That wasn't the reason that the fight began. That wasn't the reason why uh, Germany was attacked by the Allies. That was a look, look what they did afterwards type thing. It was the fact that Germany and Japan, primarily, a little bit with Italy, um, are basically starting to get a little bit of a Napoleon-style vibe. They're starting to get a little too cocky, a little too aggressive, and the rest of the world is watching and basically trying their best to stay out of it. Um, that's why I said the war could be started in 1937 if you want to call it the start date because a lot of things are happening. Violent takeovers are happening in small-scale fights and small-scale events but nothing enough to involve the major nations in fighting back. Um, it is when these small events turn into big events, like the invasion of Poland, which is the official start of the European War, uh, and Pearl Harbor, which is the official start of the Pacific War, where all these other nations, the United States, the British Empire, France, um, all the British Empire states, Canada, Australia, um, the African and Middle Eastern areas are all pulled in because the aggress aggression has gotten so bad that it's no longer a, well, we should probably do something about it. It is a, if we don't do something about it, we're next. Um, it is not a reaction as much as it is a self-defense sort of decision for most of these countries to get into World War II. Um, it's get in or be steamrolled. Um, we don't want another Mongol Empire or Alexander the Great or anything like that on our hands. So we got to stop this. Um, we're going to talk about the start of the war and the actual main events of the war uh, later on this week. But thank you for listening. And uh, be sure to complete the Google quiz that is linked on eClass once you finish listening to this. Should be pretty easy. Thanks, guys. See you later.